Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, on a recent visit to Seattle, author and environmentalist Bill McKibben apologized for his, quote, life's work of bumming people out about climate change. He continued with that sobering work in this talk at Town Hall Seattle, but not without sharing his optimism about the successes and the future of the environmental movement. But the most important thing that an individual can do is not be an individual, okay? It's to join together with other people to make big change. Um, um, That's what we got to do. Thank you. Bill McKibben has been a major force in shaping and inspiring the climate change protest movement. He is an author, journalist, and the founder of the activist network 350.org. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded his talk at Town Hall Seattle on April 4th. Here, a group of young local climate activists help introduce the program. You'll also find a speech by Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant at the end of the program. Next up, we're going to hear briefly from some climate activists who think we owe them something. Actually, we do owe them something because we're launching them into a world that's pretty terrifying. Some people think that we should avoid scaring kids with the truth about climate change. These kids know the truth, but they haven't suffered the failure of imagination, whereby some of us find it easier to imagine utter catastrophe than to imagine humans being brave enough to finally pull back from catastrophe. We owe it to them to be that brave and to help them change the world. Please welcome Aji and Adonis Piper, Sierra Duncan, Gabe Mandel, Grace and Joy Jacobowitz and Sim, uh, Tim and Sarah Deppi. Thank you. I'm 12 years old, and I'm a climate justice ambassador for Plant for the Planet. Plant for the Planet is a kids-run, kids-staffed organization to fight climate change by planting a trillion trees around the world and by fighting fossil fuels. I'm here and with Plant for the Planet. I'm here and with Plant for the Planet for the same reason, because I want a planet I can live on and I can live with. And that's, why I want, and that's why I'm encouraging you to go to the Break Free event on May 13th to 15th that you'll certainly, at Anacortes, that you'll certainly learn more about soon to fight fossil fuels. So please go and bring people you know with you. And if you know any kids who want to get involved in this fight, Tell them about the Plant for the Planet Ambassador Training Academy, where they can become ambassadors like me and like all these kids here, here on May 7th, that you can find out more about at our website, climatechangeforfamilies.com. Hi, I'm Gabe. I'm 14 years old. I am the current president of Plant for the Planet Seattle. Uh... 
As you already know, uh, Plan for the Planet itself is a worldwide children's-run organization whose three-point plan is to keep fossil fuels in the ground, fight for climate justice, and to plant a trillion trees by 2020. <laughs> and as many of you already know, 350 parts per million is the safe level of atmospheric carbon, and we're over 400 and steadily rising. But what many, some of you might not know is that there is a path back to 350. Uh, scientist James Hansen predicted uh, that if we cut CO2 emissions 6% a year, starting in 2013, and reforested 100 gigatons of carbon, we would make it back to 350 by the end of the century. That was in 2013. If we wait until 2020, I'm going to be a senior in high school. It's scary. We'd need to cut it by 15% a year, and we still wouldn't have it done by 2300. And I think we agree that most politics, they speak good words, but they don't always follow through. For instance, we had to sue our own state's Department of Ecology to uh, get them to reduce CO2 emissions. I am... I'm one of eight plaintiffs in that case. We sued them to get a rule for actually decent reductions in carbon. Uh, but why am I telling you this? Sometimes you have to take things into your own hands. There is a path back to 350, and we have to take that path. We won our case. The judge said we have a constitutional right to a safe and healthful future. We set a precedent. The reason I'm up here is not just to tell you stuff. It's to give you hope. We have a way to get back to 350. We have to stand up and we have to break free from fossil fuels. We have to break free from our current policy. And together, we have to fight climate change. And I believe we can do it. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Aji Piper, I'm 15 years old, and I'm also a Plant for the Planet ambassador, as you can see. Um, <clears throat> I would like to take a moment um, to talk a little bit about those uh, lawsuits. So we filed our lawsuit against the Department of Ecology, and as you guys just heard, we won. But we did that with the help of an organization called Our Children's Trust, who work as our attorneys. So yeah, thank you, Our Children's Trust. And on top of that, not only have they filed lawsuits here in Washington, they filed our lawsuit, they filed lawsuits in Oregon and all around the U.S., but they're also filing a lawsuit, which I am part of, I'm one of 21 plaintiffs, on a lawsuit against the federal government for the same reason and for their allowance, for their allowance of the burning of fossil fuel. So I would like to take a moment to just like recognize that that's going on, and right now we're waiting um, for the judge and his verdict on whether or not our case is dismissed or not. So that's something that's happening right now. You should probably go look it up, and it'll be cool. <laughs> and then I want to say, break free, right? We hear break free. And break free is more than just a saying that says, let's get away from fossil fuels. Break free is more than just some people being like, hey, look, fossil fuels are bad, and we're going to come up with a really cool slogan that's going to, you know, help people get involved. No. Break free. Think of it like us snapping our shackles. Shackles to what? To fossil 
fuels. Fossil fuels have been holding us in what I think of as a slavery for 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. Now we have to break free from this slavery. We have to stand up and be strong. So join everybody, anybody who can make it, go to Anacortes. Step up with your two feet. Step up with your voice and break free from fossil fuels. Break free from those chains of fossil fuel slavery. Thank you. Hello, my name is Sierra. I'm also with Plant for the Planet, as you would probably guess. Um, so... Another one of our projects is warming labels on gas pump nozzles. This is, <laughs> this is an idea that started out in Canada and has already been established in North Vancouver and is being considered in San Francisco and Berkeley. It's just a little label that goes on there and it only costs $2 each. And it's very similar, similar to the warning labels on cigarette packs, which were very effective. So every time people go to get gas, they see these labels and they see the problems that climate change is causing and also the solutions. This is really important because the number one reason people aren't getting involved in trying to stop climate change is because they're uninformed. They don't even know what it is. So these will force fossil fuel companies to label their product, which they have not done before. In fact, they have even lied for example, Exxon. Exxon has lied, and it's time for them to tell the truth. So we can break free just another way. Um, as you can tell, we kids are passionate about today's climate crisis. That's why we joined Break Free. Me and my sister have already passed out hundreds of mini flyers at the Bernie Sanders rally. Thank you, and see you in Anacortes. So this introduction is going to be very slightly longer um, because I, I admire Bill McKibben as much as I admire anyone. Not because he's worked as tirelessly as anyone to alert the world to the threats of climate change. Because of that, in all honesty, he's been troubling my sleep since the end of nature back in 1989. <laughs> also not just because he's a wonderful writer with an astonishing facility for turning dense scientific information into something easily understood, visualized, and digested by those of us whose eyes glaze over when we read scientific journals. Also, not just because he was willing to leave the quiet life of a writer behind and work with a group of college students decades younger than he was to imagine and create an activist organization that helped to jumpstart the climate movement in ways that few could have imagined. Mostly, I admire him because he is as dedicated 
uh, to this struggle, is because he is dedicated to this struggle in a way that I'm not sure I've ever known anyone to be dedicated to anything. Uh, he brings his whole heart to it, and because he does so, he can tell us terrible things, and we don't turn away. Climate change is a profound moral challenge. The system in which we are all embedded is destroying the world, and it's doing so in the most unjust ways possible, starting with those who are the least to blame. Many people simply become paralyzed by this truth, but Bill seems uniquely capable of metabolizing it and using it to fuel him, as best I can tell, for about 20 hours of every day, every day of the year. Most of us who do this work are motivated by love, love of the beauties of this world, love of other people, love of life itself in the most basic way possible. But few of us have anything like the steady flame of dedication that Bill has to meet this enormous challenge. His torch guides us, and it lights countless others, and it joins with countless other others. This is our most renewable resource in a time when much is dark. And it's why we have a chance of healing the world if we attend to it immediately, as we would to a very sick family member. We're lucky to have Bill's example in this, and even luckier to have him here tonight. Please join me in welcoming Bill McKibben. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, thank you, Emily, for all your good work and for that kind introduction. And thank you all. Um, you've already heard the good speeches that you're going to hear tonight. Okay, Sharma's <laughs> real speaker, real and and plant for the planet. Wherever you guys went, are unbelievable. Um, and. Thank you. You know, I've been coming to Seattle to talk since 1989, I guess, when I wrote The End of Nature, and I've come back again and again and always been so impressed, but it's been a few years since I've been here. Maybe the last time was when we launched the global was turned into this big global divestment campaign in in Seattle in the, the fall of 2012, I think, so a while. Um, um, and you guys gave that such a start. And since I've been here, you all have done remarkable things. Um, I was so happy to see the, um, the support you gave my um, homeboy, Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, those of us who are it's sort of, it's sort of, it's like a good cultural moment to be a sort of aging, graying Vermonter, you know. Um, 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 and I was so moved to watch everybody hard at work on the trial of the Delta Five and what amazing. And I was so happy just last week when I got an email out of the blue from my friend Jill in Bellingham saying that SRS Marine had given up the fight that all of you, you know, and the Lumi Nation had done what it took to stop the plans for that coal port at, at Cherry Point. Um, that's a... 
That's a huge, amazing victory. And last summer, uh, you know, I just got to watch in awe from the distance. It's not all that often that people get to add new words to the dictionary, but, <laughs> but Kayactivist is now the um, great thing in the whole world. So the lesson that I take from all that is that there's absolutely no need for me to be here at all. Um, You have it entirely covered. But as long as I am here, I'll say a few things. And some of them will be, I'm afraid, as is my want, um, slightly depressing. Um, My life's work in large measure has been bumming people out. and, And... For that, I apologize. Um, But you know, right now, this winter, this spring, is a tough moment on our planet. Even in the last 10 days, two weeks, the number of signals that we're getting from the natural world about how hard we've pushed things out of balance are sobering and scary. And, and, and sometimes almost overwhelming. We just ended the, the, the news from the Arctic two days ago was that we had the lowest maximum extent of ice that we've ever had in the winter in the Arctic. There's less ice now at this date than there's ever been, which makes sense because it was blazing hot across the far north all winter. I don't mean it was just a little hotter than normal. I mean that for weeks on end, it was about 18 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than normal across the Arctic. That's almost unbelievable. Um, We got the news last week that around the world, um, as oceans heat up to a place where they've never heated before, Um, We're in the middle of the third great coral bleaching event in the last 15 years, and it looks like this is going to be the very worst of them. There was a report two days ago from a biologist who'd done an aerial survey of the northern section of the Great Barrier Reef, the biggest reef in the world. He said at least 50% of the corals were bleached and dying. He said this is the saddest research trip I've ever undertaken. Sad for those reefs, sad for the 500 million people around the world who depend on coral reefs for their um, livelihood. There was a um, series of papers in Nature last week about the kind of reassessment of what's going on in the Antarctic um, demonstrating that we've grievously underestimated how quickly and how much sea level is going to rise and in the course of this century. And now we're talking not a foot or two, but a couple of meters uh, probably, Um, which is astonishing even to think about. It puts at peril pretty much all the coastal cities of the world. Those 
physical changes are already translating into truly dire consequences for real people in real places, most of them the poorest and most vulnerable people on this planet, the ones who have done the least to cause this crisis. When we talk about climate justice, and I had the good fun of talking with the earlier with people from Women of Color Speak Out who were talking a lot about climate justice. When we talk about it, what we got to remember is that climate change is, I mean, it is the most unjust thing we ever figured out how to do. There's an almost perfect inverse relationship between how much of this trouble you caused and how much of the trouble you're feeling. Um, This last couple of days... Um, in Fiji, tremendous rainfall and tremendous flooding going on right now. Lots of people out of their homes, and this comes six weeks after Cyclone Winston with the highest wind speeds ever recorded in the southern hemisphere, the kind of wind you can only have from an overheated ocean slammed into Fiji. And when it slammed in, it not only killed a lot of people, it not only displaced and made homeless 10 or 15 percent of the population, it also did such economic damage that in financial terms, it was the equivalent of 10 or 15 Katrinas simultaneously hitting the U.S. 10 percent of their GDP gone like that in a night. Um, In Pakistan today, there's absolutely out of control flooding, especially in the region around Peshawar, which has plenty of troubles already to begin with. It's an echo of the mammoth flooding in 2010, probably the greatest flooding since Noah that hit Pakistan when the Indus swelled to the point that it covered a quarter of the country, 20 million people out of their homes, okay? Um, um, Almost none of whom had done almost anything to cause the problem that they're in today as we speak right now. In the Philippines, where a tremendous epic drought is underway in parts of the country, um, farmers marching for food aid, asking for rice, were met by the police who shot them. Ten People are dead, and there's hundreds holed up right now in a Methodist church in the Philippines surrounded by police and troops. Um, The hashtag that they're using in the Philippines is bullets for rice. Um, 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 That's what happens in an unjust world that then gets stressed by these kind of just unimaginable physical changes. At the most basic level, there was a big study published today that demonstrated that as CO2 in the atmosphere rises, the nutritional quality of our main grain crops steadily deteriorates. So just think about a world where we're already having trouble growing food because it's either drought or flood in place after place where it's gotten very, very hot. And when we do grow food, it's not as good as the food we used to grow. And imagine that going forward. Imagine it getting worse. Truthfully, I mean, I'm a 
writer more than I'm an organizer, so I'm compelled usually to tell the truth, you know. Um, Truthfully, it scares the hell out of me. It is happening faster than even the most dire predictions thought it was going to happen. This winter is a scary time. 2014 was the warmest year we've ever recorded on this planet until 2015 smashed that record, and it didn't smash it by a little. It smashed it by a lot. 2015 was a full tenth of a degree centigrade hotter than any year we've ever measured. Think about a system the size of the Earth. Then imagine how much energy it takes to raise the temperature of that system a tenth of a degree centigrade in 12 months. 2016 has smashed the records that were set in 2015 so far. February was by far the warmest month we've ever measured on this planet. When we were in Paris, we talked again and again. We won this great concession from the world that they would try to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, February was about 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than the historic record on this planet. I just came this morning from the Yukon. Um, um, Gorgeous, wild country, well tended for thousands of years by the First Nations people who live there. They broke every temperature record they've ever had in the last two weeks. Their snow is gone from large swaths of it already. They're preparing as best they can for a season that's likely to be lit up by forest fires. You guys know from watching the Metau the last couple of summers what that's like, but on an even more remarkable scale. So it is a tough time, a uniquely tough time. We're living through history and through exactly the wrong kind of history. We have fully emerged from the Holocene, from that 10,000-year period of benign climatic stability that coincided not coincidentally with the rise of civilizations, and we are out of that now, and we are out of control out of that. And then, at the same time, at exactly the same moment, there's all kinds of reason to think that we have the things we need to start getting out of this fix. And some of them are technological, you know. 10, 15 years ago, we were still talking about renewable energy with our fingers crossed because it wasn't quite ready for prime time. But boy, it is now. Um, um, the engineers have done remarkable work. The price of a solar panel is down 80% in the last 10 years, just in the nick of time. Think about that work and think about the places, and there are too few, that have actually really, really put all that new promise into action. And you can start to see what could happen. The Danes last year generated... 49% of their energy from the wind, okay? Which either means that Denmark has figured out some way to monopolize the world's wind supply, (laughs) or it means that they have the political will to... It's maybe no accident that Bernie talks about Denmark a lot, you know, when he gets going. 
Um, look at China, where we're installing renewable energy at a pace that we've never seen any place around the world. Their coal use the last two years has fallen off a cliff. Um, um, begun to turn around in remarkable ways. Look even at um, sort of funny indicators like uh, the news this week that people are lining up, and I mean lining up, to buy electric cars. Elon Musk doesn't even have them to deliver yet, and 280,000 people have put money down to get one. Norway said last week that there'd be no internal combustion engine cars sold in their country past 2025. Now, even better than electric cars are buses and bicycles, okay? Um, um, uh, and I'm with Sharma, a full-on push for mass transit is one of the most important things we could do in this world, but all taken together, those things demonstrate why it's quite possible to imagine in the not very distant future a Pacific Northwest is, does not need refineries up at Anacortes, Okay. <laughs> And there are places that are demonstrating how you can do this in very poor places. Bangladesh is going to be fully solarized, we think, by about 2021. They're using that infrastructure of small-scale credit to build out solar. I mean, these are countries that the fossil fuel era did nothing for for 200 years, you know. But I saw the very first solar panel in Bangladesh 20 years ago, and now they're putting up 80,000, 90,000 arrays a month across that country. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch and to know that now there are places where people can read and study at night where, where, where change is coming. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we could do it. I don't know whether we could catch up with climate change, but we could make one hell of a try at doing it anyhow. We have what it takes. It's a race, and thanks to you, we have a chance in that race. The movement that you guys have built and that people like you have built in every corner of the world in the last 10 years has begun to give us some kind of chance. Paris exemplified that, okay? Copenhagen, which was the great, supposed to be the great moment six years before, just the same, everybody coming there, all the world leaders coming there, much attention, all hoopla, and nothing happened. Literally nothing happened. There was no agreement, nothing, okay? And everybody went home and they paid no price. 
Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton didn't get in trouble for their failure to do anything, nor did any other world leader, because there was no movement to hold them accountable. But this time there was, and there was no way that anybody could come home completely empty-handed from that. They would have been uh, scorned and excoriated for doing that because of you. And so people started, at least rhetorically, to do the right thing. In fact, the rhetoric was pretty damn good. We were surprised that we were able, led by low-lying island nations in particular, to convince the nations of the world to adopt this temperature target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. That was better than we'd had before and better than we'd hoped for. And the, the slogan of the African nations and the Maldives and the you know, Pacific Navy. The slogan was 1.5 to stay alive. Okay, so that was good. So the rhetoric was good. The trouble was, of course, that the plan that everybody voluntarily pledged to, that all the countries said, here's what I'm going to do, the U.S. said, here's what I'm going to do, the Canadians here, Chinese here, I'm going to do. If you put it into the computer and add it all up, the plan that people have agreed on is for a world that warms about three and a half degrees Celsius, okay, i.e. a world that breaks completely, a world where we cannot have civilizations, anything like the ones we're used to having, um, um, a terrifying world. That's the gap, you know. We've got people beginning to talk about some of the right things, and now we need them to do the right things, which means that our job now is to push harder than we've ever pushed before and to push hard less on our politicians, though that's important, more on the people who are really pulling the strings, who are the richest companies that the world has ever seen. The fight here now more than ever is the fight with the fossil fuel industry itself. They are the people who have kept us from making progress for so long. It took me forever to figure that out. I wrote that book way back in the late 1980s. I've been thinking about climate change forever, but I, because I'm a writer, was fool enough to think that what we were engaged in was an argument. Okay? And so one brings what one has. I, you know, it's okay. We're going to, we'll just, we'll, I'll write another book and then another one after that and another one after that and I will give talks and symposiums and papers. Um, took me a long time, too long. Sometimes I kick myself to figure out that we were not engaged in an argument. We'd won the argument. We were engaged in a fight. Okay? And fights are always about the same thing, money and power. Okay? And the fossil fuel industry had everything. They had all, the, I mean, I'm, I'm no theologian. I've never risen higher in the ecclesial hierarchy than Methodist Sunday school teacher, but it's my firm belief that the fossil fuel industry has more money than God, you know? Um, and, 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 
and so we had to figure out how we were going to match that. And the answer, the only answer, the answer that you guys have supplied is with the other currency, the currency of movements, the passion, the spirit, the creativity, the willingness sometimes to spend one's body and, and, and go off to jail. That's what it's taken. And the crazy thing is, thanks to you all, that it has started to work. I confess... I confess, I had, I mean, I had no idea whether it would actually ever really work. I mean, at some level, we just thought we were doing it because we had to do it. We had no choice. What else could one do? When we, in 2011, joined the First Nations people and others who'd been working on these questions around tar sands for years and identified this Keystone Pipeline thing as a possibility, okay, we didn't really think we had a chance, and nobody else did either. In the summer of 2011, when we were starting, the, the National Journal, the kind of insider paper in D.C., polled all its 300 Washington energy experts, and 93% of them said that TransCanada would have the permit for that thing by the end of 2011, okay? It was a done deal, but we figured we got to fight it. I mean, people up in Alberta were fighting it because it was their homeland, and the rest of us needed to fight it because there was so much carbon up there. And so people, people in this room did the right thing. People came to D.C. for that first round of civil disobedience, and it turned into the biggest civil disobedience action in 30 years in this country about anything. 1,200 and some people went to jail, and then that was just enough to get it kind of started, and then people followed with every possible, I mean, it was beautiful to watch year after year, nobody let up more emails to the Senate than about anything in history, more public comments to the State Department than about any infrastructure project in history, on and on and on, until finally, um, last fall, Barack Obama finally said, okay, we won't do it. Um, um, which was which was good. Which was good because it kept you know eight hundred thousand barrels of oil, dirtiest oil in the world, in the ground, and good because it's helping people up in those First Nations territories and farmers in Nebraska and all of that. But mostly good because it demonstrated that the fossil fuel industry could be beat, okay? And as a result, as a result, man, everything gets fought now. There was the head of the American Natural Gas Association, their big industry group, gave a talk last year to one of his industry conferences. And I cannot tell you how much it warmed my heart when I read his remarks and he said to his colleagues, we somehow have to figure out a way to stop the keystoneization of every project we're doing. Okay? Um, um, 
And not just here, but all over the world. I mean, up in Canada, they stopped all other pipelines that they were going to build, the Northern Gateway Pipeline and the Kinda, and they're going to stop the Energy East one going uh, 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 out east. Um, 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 in Australia, we think we've probably beaten plans for the biggest coal mine in the world. That work that you all did out at Cherry Point, now you're going to do the same thing in Longview and in Vancouver and all those other places. The Shell thing, think about what you all did, okay? Now Shell, Shell said, oh, we didn't find enough oil up there to justify... We've actually heard from a lot of people within Shell who say, when they're not talking to reporters, exactly what everyone knows. It's not that they didn't find enough oil. It's that they found way more trouble than they had bargained for. Okay? Um, Look at the movement around fracking all over the world now. Um, It's beautiful to see, and it's a sign of the growing sophistication of this movement, that we're able to kind of see through increasingly the kind of line of the oil. I mean, their plan was to say, well, okay, coal indeed is too dirty for anything, so now we're going to switch. Exxon became the biggest fracking company on Earth, okay? They started switching in that direction. I wrote a piece two weeks ago that was on the cover of The Nation that used the latest science, and there's a bunch of new satellite data, to demonstrate that the leaks of methane from those fracking wells around the country mean most likely that greenhouse gas emissions from the United States have either gone up or at best stayed steady during the last 10 years because we've done so much fracking. And that's why, along with all the damage to local communities, people are working so hard and so effectively. Think of the victory that your brothers and sisters across the state of New York won when they convinced the quite corporate Democrat Andrew Cuomo that he did not want to mess with this stuff anymore. The same thing in Quebec, the same thing in France, the same thing in Wales, the same thing in Scotland, the same thing place after place around the world. That's one reason why it's um, really important that uh, you guys did what you did up here with Bernie, okay? Because at the very least, it gives them uh, another month or two to press... Uh, Hillary Clinton hard as hell around fracking, okay? And, um, 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 and move the entire window of discussion away from the fossil fuel industry and towards what increasingly we understand to be our future. It's amazing the kind of shift that you all have managed to accomplish, okay? When we started talking about divestment in Seattle four years ago, you'll remember that it was all about this sort of new fact on the ground that a team of financial analysts in the U.K. had 
uncovered. When they added up all the oil and coal and gas reserves of the big fossil fuel industry companies and discovered that there had five times as much carbon as any scientist thought we could actually safely burn. Okay? Um, that was a clear indicator that they were rogue companies, that we needed to keep that stuff underground. But you know what? Nobody really knew it then. I mean, I wrote a big piece about it for Rolling Stone, um, um, but, you know, that's Rolling Stone, and, and it wasn't even on the cover. Justin Bieber was on the cover, you know. Um, um, but then thanks to you, thanks to all of you who worked so hard around divestment, all over the world, yeah, we got a lot of places to divest. I think the number now is $3.4 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios, which is a large enough number that I have no idea what it means. But, um, but the more important part is that effort in all the places that it won and in all the places that it hasn't won yet drove those numbers about carbon home. And now it's not, you know, me and Rolling Stone. Now it's the head of the IMF, the head of the World Bank. It was the head of the Bank of England talking to the world's insurance industry in the headquarters of Lloyd's of London a couple of months ago in exactly the same language, using the same math, saying you guys are heavily overexposed to what are going to be stranded assets from a carbon bubble. That's why nobody can find investors anymore when they want to build coal ports and coal mines and anything else. You all have done a hell of a job. And what that job has earned us is the chance to keep on fighting, okay? We haven't lost yet. All right? We st- I said, someone asked me after Paris, some reporter from the Times or something, I said, what is di- what's the meaning of this? I said, well, Paris didn't save the planet, but it may have saved the chance of saving the planet, okay? That's really not Paris. It's not like the diplomats there. That's not, I mean, Paris was the scoreboard, all right? The game was what you guys all did leading up to Paris, all right? putting the pressure on that allowed, that's what movements are about, okay? So now we have the chance to keep fighting, which is all we can ask for. We're not going to win this battle in our lifetimes. If we do it right, we will preserve the option for the next generation of fighters to keep on fighting, all right? Um, um, We can... We can lose it if we don't do what we need to do, but we, our, our hope is that we can... And so that means that all the new fronts in this fight, we need to engage just as more intensely than we've done around Keystone or Shell or anything else. We need to be fighting like hell to make sure that this new trade deal, the TPP thing, doesn't happen, okay? Because that's one more license... I mean, if you had any doubts about that, all you had to do was look at what happened after we won on Keystone. And TransCanada Corporation immediately used the last of these stupid things, NAFTA, to sue 
uh, to say we demand they, they're, they're, you know, all our work. Millions of people across the United States, the best exercise of democracy in the environmental movement in a very long time, could be overturned by like three bureaucrats in some faceless, anonymous room and some NAFTA adjudication hearing. Okay, we got to stop that stuff. We got to take on Exxon in a real big way because we've got an opening to take them on. There was unbelievably good reporting from the Columbia Journalism School, from Inside Climate News, from the LA Times last fall. It uncovered what I think most of us probably suspected at some point, but there's a big difference between suspected and demonstrated, okay? What it demonstrated was the most remarkable corporate scandal in history, okay? Exxon, it turns out, knew everything there was to know about climate change back as early as the 1970s. In 1977, their senior scientists were telling their senior executives what was going on and how much it was going to warm. And their senior executives were paying attention. By the 1980s and early 1990s, they were doing things like using that information to plot out their plan for doing more drilling in the melting Arctic. They knew it was going to melt. They were climate-proofing their installations, making sure that their drilling rigs were built high enough to accommodate the sea level rise that they knew was coming. But they did not tell any of us any of that, just the opposite. They spent huge sums of money helping set up the network of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us from acting for a quarter century, what may turn out to have been the most critical quarter century in, in our career as a species. Um, 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 it's, if you think about it, just, well, the mind boggles. All they had to do, I mean, when Jim Hansen went to Congress and testified in 1988 about global warming and warned people about it, if Exxon scientists had merely said the next day, you know what, this is what our science finds too, that would have been, a, no one would have said, oh, Exxon is a bunch of climate alarmists, you know. <laughs> they would have said, okay, we got a problem, we got to get to work, but they didn't do that. Instead, their CEO went to China and said the planet is cooling, and at any rate, it makes no difference whether we act now or 25 years from now. China, you should go ahead and develop as much fossil fuel as you can as fast as you can. Okay? When those first stories came out last fall, okay, I was a little worried that they were going to kind of disappear into the maelstrom of information that marks our world, you know, and that, uh, you know, 24 hours later, uh, somebody, you know, Donald Trump would have said something rude or something, and, and everybody would have been fixated. We just would have gone by. I was very worried. I knew this was, you know, too good reporting to waste. And so uh, the only thing I could think of to do was go up to the um, Exxon station in Burlington in our 
big city in Vermont, city of 50,000 people. Okay? And, and I just, I, it wasn't very dramatic, you know, very well planned. I just uh, had a little sign. And I sat down in front of the pump and it said, this pump is temporarily closed because Exxon lied, you know. And, <laughs> and, and, and I gave the guy who run the store a hundred bucks because it's not his fault, you know, and didn't want to... And after a little while, police come, take me away, whatever. Uh, it, it did the thing that I wanted at least a little bit. I got a um, call from a friend on Facebook later on saying, you know, for like an hour, you were like one of the top trending things on <laughs> Facebook until you were replaced by a, a, a video of a corgi barking at a miniature pumpkin. But... Um, <laughs> um, 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 it helped. It was one of the many things that people did all over the place to try and put it. And, you know, now, soon after that, the Attorney General of New York announced that he was going to investigate Exxon. And then the Attorney General of California. And now the Attorney General of Massachusetts and of the Virgin Islands. And there is no reason on earth why the Attorney General of the state of Washington should not be working hard on this. And and if you make sure and leave your name tonight, then Emily, people will be able to be in touch to let people know how to put some pressure there to make it happen, okay? The other thing we've got to push on right now this spring is the one that everybody, that Sharma and the, the plant for the planet people talked about. That's this break-free thing, the culmination, for the moment anyway, of this work to keep it in the ground, to make sure that we leave stuff where it belongs. When you're up there at Anacortes, know that you will have company in every corner of the world, okay? There'll be people in Indonesia and in Australia and in the Philippines and in India and in everywhere on these huge deposits of carbon making the same kind of stand and in some places doing it where it's even riskier to be doing this, okay? So just know, know all the time all the time that you have brothers and sisters all over the place, most of them in places that didn't cause this problem, most of them poor and black and brown and Asian and young because that's what most of the world is composed of, Uh, most of, well, all of them fighting with the same things in their hearts. I was going to show some pictures tonight, and I, I, I'm afraid I'm so bad at technology that, I mean, uh, I could flip through. We've done like 40,000 demonstrations around the world, okay? So uh, I could show pictures for a long time, all right? um, um, for a very long time, from every corner of the world. And I won't, uh, I, 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 I just, I'll flash, I want to get right towards the end. There's a few that I really want to show you. Um, uh, uh, because, because they're my gift to you for all your work as your, all your chi-activist work, okay? Um, um, I mean, these are all the places that are feeling the effects of climate change now where people are having to leave their homes, 
that top red balloon was where the level of the Dead Sea was 40 years ago, okay? Um, um, these are people in that district in Pakistan, uh, pushed out of their home by the greatest flood of all time. Um, um, everywhere, all over the world, okay? Um, and beautiful pictures from every, there you are, from every, these are from the climate march. And, but the, here's the ones I wanted to show you. The other Kai activists, okay? Just so you know who everybody's about. These are our great, beloved colleagues, terrific leaders on the Pacific Island nations. They've been there in those nations, those cultures, for four, five, six thousand years. Okay, these are deep-rooted cultures, places like Vanuatu or the Marshalls or Fiji or, or, or so on. About ten of these island nations that are going to be, I mean, the news from the Antarctic last week if we don't stop things very, very soon, there is no chance that these islands will be above water by the end of the century, okay? People facing an existential crisis, but their slogan has been, we are not drowning, we are fighting, which is a good slogan to have. And so what they did was they built on one, each, each island, each of these 10 islands, they felled a tree and they built a kind of indigenous canoe Different styles from different islands. There's an outrigger one. They were beautiful. And they took them that same day that a lot of us were in New York marching down 6th Avenue, the same day that the Rockefeller family announced that they were divesting their fossil fuel shares. Okay? The other thing that was going on that day was that these guys were in the biggest coal port in the world, which is in Newcastle in Australia. All right. And they were using those canoes to blockade the biggest ore ships on the planet. And for a day, they kept them in the harbor. And And what it demonstrates to me always is just the depth and spread and creativity and beauty of this movement. It is basically a leaderless movement, you know. We have no Dr. King. We're, maybe we'd be better off if we did, but we don't, okay? And so we, I think in many ways, we're better off without. Just huge, sprawling, protean resistance that is in the face everywhere of this industry and yet knows how to unite when there are moments when we need to unite. It's something we haven't quite seen before it's building ever stronger coalitions with labor, with racial justice. I mean, these in most of the world, these are just all the same things, deeply intermeshed and entwined, okay? I'm a writer. And so I tell you what I think, which is I actually don't know if we're going to win this fight. I don't know. I don't know if we got started in time. The physics of this is daunting. Okay? Daunting. We are behind. It is scary. But I do know, absolutely, absolutely know that we're going to fight. 
Every corner of the world now, tonight and every night, there are people in rooms like this one coming together to figure out what to do and how to fight. And it is always such an honor to get to be in those rooms, and it is such an honor to be in this one with you guys who are great heroes, and just to get to say, I look forward to being shoulder to shoulder with you going forward. Thank you all so much. So people are going to be coming by and handing out pledge cards, and what you should do is fill them out, and then you can either pass them back to the people who will be collecting them, or you can give them at the door on your way out. So I have a couple other things to tell you about while you're getting your cards, which is that there are a couple opportunities coming up to join us in organizing for Break Free and all the other climate work we're doing. So... 350 Seattle General Meeting is this Wednesday, so in two days. It is in the University District at the Friends Meeting House, and you can find it at 350seattle.org. It starts at 5.30 with a potluck. If you don't have any food with you, come anyway. At 6.30, we'll have the general meeting, 6.30 to 8.30. And then a week later, on Wednesday the 13th, There's going to be an open meeting about Break Free that everyone's invited to, so you can see how you can plug in. We need everybody for this, so please come. And it's going to be at 7 p.m. at Woodland Park Presbyterian Church, and that's in Greenwood neighborhood. And you'll be able to find that on the breakfreepnw.org site and also on the 350seattle.org calendar. Um, Pretty soon here, we're going to start a question and answer period with Bill. And unfortunately, I'm sure there are more questions than we possibly have time for. So what I'm going to ask is that everybody think about what is a pressing question for you and how can you state it very briefly. And then I also want you to think about your privilege So as you come forward, we're going to have people not line up, but gather near the mics, and Ellen will be over there, and I'll be here, and we will be prioritizing people who have been traditionally marginalized. So first priority for questions will go to women, trans, and people of color, and then everybody can check themselves around all the other privileges. Okay? Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I learned the good, good word for that, the good phrase for that. It's a progressive stack that people were telling me earlier today, and it's a good thing to be thinking about. And it's questions, comments, you know, abuse would be okay, too. I let you have it full on, so you feel free. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hi, Bill. My name is Afrin. I am from the Women of Color Speak Our Group. My question is about carbon markets and carbon taxes. We have seen how indigenous people are pushed off their lands, like in the Amazon, by the Nature Conservancy, so that corporations can continue to pollute or rich people can offset their second car. Do you support carbon markets? Also, Carbon Washington is a revenue-neutral carbon tax that hurts the poorest of people. Do you support revenue-neutral taxes? I don't. I'm, uh, I gather from what little I know about it that there's lots of debate in Washington between different groups about different kinds of carbon prices and things. I got to say, I think that probably this is one of these things that you better get everybody on the same page on before you push it. Um, um, that one of the things that's been most important in this um, movement in general has been trying to keep some kind of powerful unity together. And so if you're going to do it, do it in a way that everybody can deal with and work on. Do I think that, that fossil fuel industry should pay a price for the damage that carbon does in the atmosphere? I do. Um, I think it's crazy that we let them be the only industry on earth that gets to throw out their waste for free. I think that's the greatest um, uh, perk, benefit, privilege we ever gave the fossil fuel industry, and I'd love it to end. Um, but it needs to end in a way that really works for people. So that would be my sense of things. Hello again. Uh, so. First off, I just want to remind people that climate change is a racism problem because if you, you can bet if the global north was affected like the global south, they would have done something about it. But because it's only black and brown people dying at the millions and because our lives don't matter, climate change isn't addressed. I also have to remind you that it is not people's of color job to teach white people about racism and it's not people's of color's job to get along with you all. White people created racism, so you guys are responsible to dismantle that, this mess. On that note, it was a white colonizing countries of the global north that came into the global south, stole their oil resources, colonized their countries, and essentially destabilized them. Now that the colonizing countries are more stabilized through their theft, the formerly colonized are left vulnerable to climate change. The colonizing countries are most responsible for climate change, and for this re reason, reparations are owed from the global north to the global south. On top of this, the global north owes it to open up their borders to the climate refugees. I'm wondering if you support the reparations and the opening of the borders. I think that the, one of the most important things that should have happened at Paris and only happened in small measure so far was just what you talk about. We need real transfer of resources north to south for two reasons. One is justice and the other is pragmatism. We need 
the countries of the global south to be able to leapfrog the fossil fuel age and go straight to the renewable age. And it's possible for that to happen now, but it's going to take resources to make it happen. And so far, those resources haven't been made available. It's not possible for us to simply say, well, we filled the atmosphere with carbon. Now you guys figure out something else to do, okay? One of the things that should be said is that increasingly there's real leadership coming from nations in the South, especially around renewable energy. Um, yeah, I talked about some of what you're seeing in China. One of the real, maybe the, at this point, even more important test case is going to be what happens in India in the next little while. And I think that there are some very good signs and some very tough signs. Um, um, you know, the Prime Minister of India, uh, Narendra Modi, campaigned on the corporate jet of the Adani Corporation, the biggest coal company in India, okay? Uh, there's fossil fuel politics there just like there is every place else. On the other hand, the air quality has gotten so bad in cities in India. I was just in Delhi. Half the children in Delhi, two and a half out of the five million children in Delhi, now have irreversible lung damage because of what they're breathing. Okay? Think about that for a little while when you think about climate justice, when you think about what this means. That's the other reason that we should be working extremely hard to make sure that they have the resources necessary to make that leap. Uh, it's a sunny country. The solar panels are cheap. With the right help, they could really make that leapfrog. But so far, it's not coming. Um, you know, the U.S. committed to a very small sum of money, $500 million a year in public money to go do this, which in the context of what we need to do I mean, $500 million is like the kind of money that you give the potato chip council, you know, to subsidize marketing programs and stuff. It's not what you do to get whole sections of the world onto renewable energy. And even that $500 million has been, of course, held up in Congress um, um, by people who are unwilling to see it appropriated. So there is huge work to be done here, and it's one of the really important parts of that work, and thank you for reminding us about it. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is Yin with the Women of Color Speak Out Oso. Um, I think as a person of color, I share a different perspective on how the environmental movement approaches is currently going. And so as a woman of color, I don't feel safe or heard in the mainstream environmental movement. And how do you think, or what do you think the movement needs to do to fix that or change that? I think that the movement needs to reflect everybody. And that's how we've tried to, I mean, that's how it's increasingly organized all over the world, which is a really good thing. Um, and it's one of the things that we've long thought in the United States 
was that we had all the answers to everything and everybody else around the world should emulate us and we'd figured it all out and the rest of the world wanted to do it. Well, it just turns out that that's not true, really. And across a huge variety of questions, including ones about diversity and inclusivity, there's all sorts of parts of the world that have figured out how to do things in really powerful ways. I think that many of the models of kind of the environmental movement that we've had for a long time are shifting and need to shift. Um, We don't need... We were talking about this earlier. The old model was we had... It was sort of like our power system, okay? We had a few big centralized environmental groups, and they sort of... And they were good and they were noble people and hardworking people and whatever, but they, you know, that's, that was sort of where the power and the energy and whatever was. In the same way that we want a grid with 10 million solar panels on 10 million roofs all interconnected, everybody producing and consuming, that's the kind of political action we want too, with everybody being able to play a real and serious role. That's why we set up 350 the way we did, and you saw as they flashed by as sort of just a tiny sampling of the kind of ways that people have engaged all over the planet. Um, part of that mean, it meant at 350 that it was sort of the kind of opposite of how things are usually organized. Like we had no intellectual property. Um, you know, when I mean, like, like there's 350 Seattle, okay? But it isn't actually like a part of three. There's like some official thing, you know, uh, in that sense. It's like control. It's just rose up, and the same thing in Kuala Lumpur, and the same thing in Kathmandu, and the same thing in a million other places. Everybody just taking responsibility, and. So look at those things that are happening in other places and figure out how to emulate them with the same kind of diversity, the same kind of um, spread outness that gives everyone a chance. That would be my, as good as I've got. But as I say, I mean, at some level, what the hell do I know? You know, I'm a writer. Um, um, I've, we've been completely making it up as we go along at 350, and one of the good things about the world we live in is that there's lots of room to kind of make it up as we go along, you know. Um, 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 so go for it, and thank you for your work. Hi, my name's Carol, and I was struck by that photograph right there. Yeah. Where are the warships from? The warships? Yeah, do you know where Well, they're, they're I mean... Just various it's, countries? It's, yeah, it's always hard to tell with shipping. You know, theoretically, you know, ships always get registered in, like, Liberia. But probably most of it's going to Asia, or was... Oh, okay, these are just cargo ships or... Or, or ships. This is coal. Yeah, okay. huge quantities of coal. I just happened to thought you might have the answer as to why no one is talking about cutting the defense budget of this country. Well, I think, I think people are. I think people are talking about the cutting the defense budget. I think that's one of the things that um, my old friend... Mr. Sanders has been talking about assiduously. Um, uh, 
uh, and it's a good idea. And you get a sense of how good idea it is when you look at places. Last year, for the first six months of last year, Costa Rica produced all the power that it used renewably. Okay, every last bit. And one of the reasons is that Costa Rica does, the one country in the world doesn't have an army, okay? So, like, they have more money to do stuff with, you know, than, than we do. So I, I think it's an important thing to do. One of the great, I got to say, one of the great things about um, living in Vermont is, uh, uh, you know, we get to um, uh, assign a great many tasks to Bernie to take care of for us, you know. And you need to find, you need to make sure that, uh, you know, Maria Cantwell and people are, are talking with just as much passion. And, and, I mean, she's been doing some good things, but Bernie is demonstrating how to be on fire about stuff, okay? And it's amazing. One of the things I was sort of trying to say before, and I think this goes for the Sanders campaign, it certainly went for what we're doing at Keystone and everywhere else. It's weird, but often when we fight, we win. Um, and that means that we should fight more of the time, okay? We shouldn't just give up in advance because the other side's too powerful or too many advantages or too entrenched or whatever else. You know, I mean, it's never easy. I mean, and it's much harder than it should be. No one should have had to go to jail to stop this foolish pipeline, you know, whatever. But, but when we fight, we win sometimes, which, is, which, if you think about it, is a good sign. So. Well, the woman who asked about the nuclear weapon, I mean, about the uh, military budget, um, I, I don't, one thing that isn't being talked about much is the fact that the U.S. is going to spend a trillion dollars in the next few decades to completely uh, modernize the entire nuclear weapons arsenal. And with Russia and the U.S. at odds over uh, <clears throat> Syria and the Ukraine and things like that, uh, I, I just wonder if the nuclear weapons could get us before climate change does. Go for it. I, my, I mean... I confess, too, just as with Bernie, like, uh, the large part of me that, like, shirks responsibility, like, I've, you know, um, I don't have any more hours in the day. Um, uh, uh, so someone else is going to have to figure out some of, you know, the movement building around some of this stuff. And it's possible to do. I mean, we started 350.org with myself and seven college students. Um, we had no money and no whatever. There were seven college students, there were seven continents, each one took one, okay? The guy who took the Antarctic also had to take the internet, you know? Um, uh, our job was to find people like ourselves all over the world and turn them into the leaders of all of this, and it proved possible so you can do it around any number of things. doesn't do any good to talk about it. Um, better try and do it if you want something done about it. So my question is, what about the other side of this? I can protest against fossil fuel, and I have, but I drive a car. 
I don't have much of an option. Um, how do we address the consumption uh, as well as the protest? Right. It's a very good question. That was where... It's really where the environmental movement started with trying to deal with climate change, and there was a kind of 10-year period when a huge amount of the focus was on light bulbs and on and on and on. And it's all really important. Like, uh, I mean... You should see my house. It's uh, covered with solar panels, and we had the first hybrid electric Ford in Vermont, and I spent an entire year, literally, we didn't eat a single thing that didn't come from our valley. You know, we still are basically local everything, um, all of that. It's all really important, and I also try hard not to fool myself that it's doing very much about climate change. At this point given the time that we have, if we had 50 years or 75 years, by far the best strategy would be to do exactly what you're suggesting, to work on our own consumption, model things. Other people would see it. You'd put solar panels on your roof. Your brother-in-law would come over for Thanksgiving. He would see them. He'd, you know, on we'd go and we'd make... We're now... We don't have... Not only don't have 50 years. I mean, we had to start 25 years ago if we really wanted to get this. We are so far behind the eight ball that at this point it's very important to do those things, but if you only have a given quanta of energy or time or money, the most important thing to do is be powerfully politically engaged because these are structural and systemic problems above all and if we change those structures around them then we have some real chance of changing behavior and consumption patterns on a big enough scale to matter. So it's really... I'm, I, I, I've, I don't want anyone to go away with the notion that it's not important to do things in your own life, okay? But the most important thing that an individual can do is not be an individual, okay? It's to join together with other people to make big change. Um, um, that's what we've got to do. Good question. Thank you. I just want to take a quick second to recognize privilege and environmental racism and acknowledge that we are on Duwamish land right now. So that was all I wanted to say. Good for you. Somebody else? Yeah. Uh, my name is Stephen. I teach part-time at a community college, and I've noticed in all the discussion about renewables that there's an amazing thing that's been discovered, and there's almost no talk about it, solar roadways. A little town in the Netherlands built a 70-meter test strip two years ago, and exceeding all their expectations, it produced enough power to power 100 homes. And it's affordable, it's off the shelf, it doesn't require any great new technology, and there's an outfit in the U.S. that's working on it. And if you think of the surface area of all the interstates in the United States, if they were solarized, we wouldn't have any kind of fossil fuel or transportation problem. They would produce the electricity not only to power uh, businesses and homes, they would fuel the electric cars. 
And yet there's not been one word in the major press that I've seen about the potential for solarizing the roadways of the United States. The, the good news is that there are, uh, you know, don't wait around always for the mainstream media to, I mean, there's a good, there's a, if, if you go Google it, you'll find an immense amount of good stuff on YouTube and elsewhere about solar roadways. And take it to heart, and, and then think about what you guys did. You went and put a big roadway underground where no sun can reach it at all, you know. Um, 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 or you're trying anyway. It's not quite done yet from what we hear. But uh, 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 So it's good. We need solar roadways. And on top of them, we need bike paths. And we need buses. And we need... I mean, one of the problems, like the deep structural problems that we we talked about some of them, racism and imperialism and colonialism, and another one that we don't talk about enough is the incredible level of kind of hyper-individualism under which we operate in a high-consumer society. And that gets, that gets heavy in the way of doing a lot of the things we need to do. One of the things that's nice about public transit is it's public. Uh, you're on it with other people. So keep thinking about that stuff too. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking since it is a political year and an opportunity to build more support for these causes, do you have any concern that certain candidates like Hillary Clinton have accepted um, donations from the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, I get... Uh, heavy I mean, one of the good things so here's what I think about politics okay about electoral politics it's one part of this puzzle it's not it's not like election day election day is an important day and you go and vote okay but we have a tendency to go and vote for someone on election day and then that's the end of what we do Okay. The next day is just as important politically and the day after that and the day after that. So, yeah, I have big, like, like, you know, I went and worked pretty hard for Barack Obama and then I went and helped organize the biggest demonstration against Barack Obama that there was. I'm working real hard for Bernie Sanders, who I love, but as I wrote, uh, uh, you know, the week after I introduced him at his announcement thing in Burlington, I said, but chances are, you know, I'll end up, once he's elected, chained to the gate outside his office, you know, um, um, which he would like nothing more of in the world, you know. Um, um, he's about movements and, and building. Yeah, uh, taking money at this point from the fossil fuel industry is not okay. This is a rogue industry whose business plan, if we follow it, breaks the planet, all right? And so it's not okay to be engaged with them. And I've been really happy that our crew of mostly young people at 350 Action uh, have been bird-dogging candidates for the last six months and doing just what you're doing, asking them questions, getting them on the record. And it's been fun to watch them kind of move people, okay? So all of a sudden, 
we asked a question with a cell phone up, and it turned out that, what do you know? Uh, it turned out that Hillary Clinton was now against the Keystone Pipeline after all these years. And then it turned out that she was against the TPP trade deal that, like, she'd helped write, you know? Um, um, and, and, and we're really hoping that maybe it'll turn out that, what do you know, she's... Um, might be against fracking now, you know, sometime in the next little while, okay? Um, One of the things we do in political season is try to move the window, move the center in the right direction. But God, whatever we do, like the very worst, meanest, cruelest thing to do would be to elect Bernie president and then just walk away. Um, um, The... The slogan that he's been using is the most beautiful political slogan I've ever heard, not me, us, okay? And that should be internalized not just for his campaign, but for every kind of movement that we do, not me, us. Hi, Bill. Uh, Thank you so much. It's really helpful to have you come and make your comments. Uh, My name's Terry Seuss. I actually am a Seattle native. (laughs) There aren't too many of us around, and I spent most of my life back in New Jersey. So I'm only here a couple years, and it's very impressive in terms of all the work people have done here. However, it's also very clear after the Delta V trial to someone like me who's kind of new back here and trying to connect the dots that we have a target on our back. Washington State has a target on its back by the fossil fuel industry for numerous, numerous projects, which the Delta V trial pointed out to us so massively, wonderfully. Um, And the fact that it's an environmental movement right now and not a massive uh, movement of citizens here out to defend what they've moved here for has to change. And it will change, I think, with the break-free effort. So make that's right. Make it happen. Washington has a target on its back because, among other things, of geography. Okay, You guys have the great burden, but also the great honor of being one of the few choke points by which we can stick the cork in the fossil fuel bottle. Most of the oil and coal is in the middle of the continent, and, you know, whoever God or whoever designed the, you know, Pacific Coast made it so that there's not so many places where it's going to come out, you know. There's not that much deep water and there's not... Well, that means that you guys can stick the cork straight in that bottle and by God, you're doing it. Um, 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 they're not going to... If they don't can't build the port at Cherry Point and they can't build the port at Longview, then they're not going to mine the coal in Montana and Wyoming. It's going to stay underground, all right? So on it. Hello, my name is Rick File. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for uh, your lecture. Um, and I'm with a new meetup group uh, called Carbon Removal Seattle. And I'm just interested, or I guess I should say we're interested um, in your general thoughts on carbon removal. On and what? The, on carbon removal from the atmosphere uh, and the economic viability and any kind of new technologies. Thank you. I think the most useful technologies for taking carbon out of the atmosphere are going to be trees, soil, plankton, okay? And, uh, and soil, 
Soil is the one where we can do the most to kind of change the stakes at this point. One of the best things that happened in Paris was that uh, soil protection and improvement became a big deal. Um, In fact, as part of the run-up to it, the French parliament passed a law that incentivizes, they're calling it the 4% law or something, that increase in carbon uh, in French soils of 0.4 tenths of a percent each year for the next 10 years. That would be a lot of carbon. In fact, we think that if we really did everything we could around soil and carbon, we could probably take deal with 40 or 50 parts per million CO2, something like that, um, um, which you know obviously isn't going to solve the problem, and we can't keep pouring more in. I mean, you know, we've got to shut down, but, but that would be that would help. Uh, a lot of Jim Hansen's modeling about what we might do to get out of this is contingent on changes in land use in that way. So I think on the scale we're talking about, those are the things that are likely to scale big enough to really matter in time that matters. That'd be my guess. I think we've, have we exhausted, I, I feel like I've exhausted you all. You, you go ahead. You, you have the last... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Um, you mentioned that we've at least temporarily shut down the Keystone Pipeline. Mm. Can you say a few words about the importance of stopping the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline that goes to Vancouver and would increase the number of fully laden tankers going down Boundary Pass and Harrow Straits right in our backyard? In the that was exactly State. what I was going to say. Okay. Just what you said. You've done it. You're absolutely right. As I was saying before, the importance of Keystone is not that we stopped Keystone. The importance of Keystone is it means we can stop every other one. And trust me, I tried the other day. I was writing a piece, and I was trying to list all just the pipeline, never mind the coal mines, fracking wells, LNG ports, just the pipelines that we're now fighting around North America. And there were a good... Two or three dozen where people have gone to jail, where people have done, I mean, people have done amazing work, and it's really powerful to see it happening. Um, thank you for your work on that. I was down in Vancouver for a uh, sort of first big r- rally. Um, my job's always to just sort of help show up and kick things off. I got to be in Bellingham, really, for the, almost the first sort of rally about uh, Cherry Point, you know, and down in Vancouver. I have no doubt that people are going to win these fights. None at all. There are places in the world where I don't know. If we're going to win. No doubt that you guys are completely up to the task. It's going to take a lot of work. It always does. But absolutely you guys are going to win if you fight up here. So thank you so much for doing it. Thank you, Bill. Thomas Awant has made a splash nationwide while working hard for the people of Seattle. Without her, the fight for 15 was making steady but slow progress. Six months after her election, for which this was a central issue, the fight was over and won. Not long after that... Not long after that, she lent her considerable firepower to the successful campaign for Indigenous Peoples' Day. She's also been a leader... In the, in the climate fight, protesting the unconscionable risks associated with Bakken oil trains and joining us in the protests at the port last year over Shell's Arctic drilling rigs. 
Given her steady and strong support of labor, tenants, racial justice, and community and climate activists, she embodies what we're all talking about when we talk about intersectionality. We cannot win these fights one at a time. They are all connected. And nobody knows that better than Shama Sawant. Please join me in welcoming her tonight. Sisters and brothers, I want to thank you all for being here. I am grateful to Bill McKibben, 350, and all those who have committed themselves to fight against the climate crisis. I welcome Bill warmly on behalf of Seattle's working people. We are fortunate to have Bill here with us to discuss the state of the climate struggle and to help build a worldwide mobilization of environmental activists break free. As many of you already know, during the second weekend of May, one of the U.S. actions for break free will be right here in Washington State. Our action will be aimed against the Shell and Tesoro refineries near Anacortes. <laughs> Sisters and brothers, these two refineries have not been targeted arbitrarily. Together, they represent the largest unaddressed source of carbon pollution in the Northwest, refining 47% nearly half of all the gas and diesel used in the region. They have been central to big oil's exponential expansion of oil train traffic, these bombs on wheels that every day go through downtown Seattle, less than a mile from here, endangering the lives of tens of thousands of people in multiple cities along the way, as well as our planet itself. And these refineries are by no means the last staging ground for big oil. Tesoro is currently fighting to build the world's biggest oil terminal in Vancouver, Washington, a terminal that would receive 360,000 barrels a day. Sisters and brothers, can we all agree that we need to break free from these refineries and terminals and the dirty fossil fuel industry? But the question that faces us is what will it take to halt climate change? Climate change has not developed in a vacuum. It is the direct result of this system, capitalism, and the inefficient, 
destructive, and unjust way in which it functions. Capitalism is not capable of the kind of coordinated democratic international planning that will be necessary to restructure our energy infrastructure and economy. Because it is relentlessly driven by the need of corporations to maximize profits at any cost, whether on rail or through pipelines, big oil is hell-bent on trafficking dirty energy for private profit. We must also face up to the political questions in America. The fact that while Democrats admit the crisis exists and speak eloquently about reform, their actions speak otherwise, promoting deep-sea drilling, facilitating the exponential growth of fracking and oil trafficking, refusing to promote massive investment in alternative energy. This is not just a Republican problem. The leadership of both these corporate political parties are in big oil's back pockets. We must recognize what is needed. A decisive turn towards collective action demanding the fundamental structural changes that are necessary to address climate change. And our message needs to be clear. We need to build a movement, a powerful movement strong enough to win transformative change. It is essential that workers and environmental activists unite and fight together. <laughs> Labor activists have a vital task. We need to pull our unions to the left, democratize them, and politically mobilize our fellow rank-and-file members to fight for the rapid transition away from fossil fuels. And my sisters and brothers, I stand in front of you today not only as a city council member, but as a socialist, as an environmental activist, and as a rank and file member of the American Federation of Teachers, Local 1789. <laughs> and environmental activists have an equally vital task, convincing their fellow activists, that massive investment in green energy infrastructure and job retraining programs for fossil fuel sector workers is essential. We cannot move rapidly away from fossil fuels if we leave behind the workers and unions in those industries. We need a just transition for all energy industry workers. We need massive public projects like those Bernie Sanders is calling for and more. <laughs> projects that are owned and democratically controlled by the people, not by corporations.
along with the dramatic expansion of mass transit in all cities, including our own Seattle, all of which would create millions of living wage unionized jobs around the country. And I know mass transit is one of the unifying factors. You know, everybody's so sick and tired of traffic. I think we can and must build a mass movement for full funding of mass transit in Seattle. The energetic support of millions of people for Bernie Sanders' campaign shows the hunger for an alternative to the Democratic and Republican Party's politics of Wall Street and big oil, of fracking and Arctic drilling. We need Bernie Sanders to run all the way to November As an independent, if he is blocked by the Democratic National Convention in the undemocratic primary. <laughs> we need to use the enormous energy around his campaign to begin building a party for the 99% that does not take money from big oil, from Wall Street, and from the billionaire class. In the course of our, our struggle, we will of course need to deploy many different strategies and tactics depending on our concrete circumstances. But one thing should be crystal clear. We cannot be bound by what is acceptable to establishment politicians and the big corporations they serve. It is estimated that almost two-thirds of the greenhouse gas emissions since the dawning of the industrial age came from 90 corporations, only 90 companies, Exxon, Shell, BP, Chevron, you know their names. These corporations have had a firm grip on all of the resources, technology, and capital necessary to end the fossil fuel economy and power our global society on clean energy. So why don't they do it? Do they simply not understand? <laughs> the truth is, no amount of scientific evidence, no voice of reason, will talk them out of drilling every last drop of oil that they can sell out of the ground. Our movement must not look to them, but instead be guided by the needs of working people and the planet. <laughs> to address the climate crisis, we must be able to democratically and rationally decide how these enormous resources should be used so that society as a whole can use them in the interests of people and the planet. How else can this be done except by bringing the giant energy companies into democratic public ownership? <laughs> My sisters and brothers, it is straightforward. We cannot control what we don't own. While this struggle is larger in scale than any battle that any of us have ever fought, 
There are experiences from other social movements. Right here in Seattle, my organization, Socialist Alternative, laid the groundwork for 15 Now campaign, helped put forward a demand for 15 for all workers, and that campaign has now gone national. Barely any elected officials here in Seattle supported the demand when we began. No other candidate running in 2013 was putting this demand forward. It was the socialists, fast food workers, labor activists, and others who took up this call. And we were dismissed as unrealistic by the media establishment. But our demand resonated with workers as an urgent one. We worked with everyone interested in winning a living wage to mobilize a strong grassroots movement. The corporations were always against us, but they had to concede. They and their corporate politicians had no choice but to concede in the face of growing mass support. It is true we did not win anything, everything, and the political servants of big business, all of them Democrats, carved out loopholes harmful to workers. But we won the highest minimum wage in the country by demanding it. I think there is broad agreement in this town hall and in our movement for the need for a collective struggle of this kind, except on a much larger scale. But this cannot be achieved unless we build a united and independent force. And we need to effectively communicate this need for independence to our friends and allies who still hope against hope that change can be leveraged out of a corporate political party and corporate politicians. Nobody here would disagree that we cannot rely on climate change deniers or on the Republicans, but neither can we rely on big business Democrats. Under Obama, there has been a massive expansion, not of clean energy, but fossil fuels, oil drilling in the Arctic, of fracking and oil train traffic. It is an expansion that hasn't been seen since the age of the robber barons. But it is not just about Obama. The entire Democratic Party establishment is joined at the hip to big oil and Wall Street. And history has shown that if we tone down our demands to appease the Democratic Party elite, they will simply use our generosity to further appease their corporate donors. If we accept corporate politicians like Hillary Clinton out of fear of the Republicans, then we undermine our own movement and, it is, and its independence from big oil and corporate America. If Bernie does not win the primary and we cannot convince him to run as an independent, although we should try to, then we should support Green Party candidate Jill Stein.
Jill, like Bernie, does not take money from big oil or the billionaire class. We cannot leave Trump the field wide open to win the anti-establishment vote. We must not demobilize our movement or sacrifice its independence because only an independent force of the 99%, a new party based on workers, young people, environmentalists, and labor will be able to fight Wall Street and big business. Many environmentalists, particularly younger activists, understandably have not had yet any experience with labor unions for the simple reason that unions have been decimated over the last many decades. But what many young workers and environmentalists see is conservative leadership in certain unions. They may see confusion over the necessary transition and look elsewhere. But we need to remember that unions remain the strongest organizations that we have to improve our living standards and to build a movement to save the planet. And this is as true for climate change as it has been for any other struggle. 48 years ago today, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis while supporting sanitation workers on strike. The civil rights movement, like the climate movement, certainly faced some resistance from conservative labor leaders who were too closely tied to the corporate politicians, politicians who defended segregation. But Dr. King and other civil rights leaders understood the need to work hand in hand with the progressive elements of labor to democratize the unions, to promote radical labor leadership, and to unite. We can break free if we forge a green and labor alliance to defeat big oil. The great working class fighter Rosa Luxemburg said a century ago that the future will either be one of socialism or barbarism. It is up to us, sisters and brothers, to ensure that our future is not one of the disasters of climate change and capitalism, but instead one of cooperation, humanity, beauty, and sustainability, solidarity. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Bill McKibben is an author, journalist, and the founder of the activist network 350.org. Thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for recording his talk at Town Hall Seattle on April 4th. Tune in again soon. Thank you.